Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. In this episode, we have got a real champion of socialist politics, a man crazy enough to try and steal seats from Sinn Féin in West Belfast and in the Stormont Canteen. It's the People Before Profit MLA, Jerry Carroll. We got into everything from student activism and the climate strikes to the threat of People Before Profit and other grassroots parties to the dominance of Sinn Féin and the DUP, and even being kept off the debate floor in Stormont. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So without further ado, here's Jerry Carroll. So, yeah, thanks thanks for agreeing to, to chat to me, Jerry. It's a, it's a real well, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So I'll not waste your time here. Why would you be so mad in your life as to decide that, you know, West Belfast isn't enough of a stronghold for Sinn Féin and they are obviously very beatable in that part of, of Northern Ireland? When you decided you wanted to go into politics, why would you challenge them in that stronghold? Why not go for somewhere easier? Like yeah. you could probably, you've probably got it in in South Belfast with all the like garden center liberals. Why West Belfast? I mean, there's nothing wrong with garden center liberals, like, but it's not my uh, <laughs> my audience or, or my community. But um. I suppose when you put it like that, it's an interesting question. You know, it was some time ago when I, when I first did, I think, uh, what's that, nine years ago now, I think, 2011, yeah, nine years ago. So, I mean, with everything, and I know we're going to discuss some of the stuff, but with everything that's happened, it seems like a lifetime ago. But um, to put it simply, basically, I mean, I was politicized around, I don't know, 16, 17, sort of late teenage years, um, became... I don't know, I was so close to sort of 17 or 18 or 19, I don't know what precise year, you know, but it became radicalised politically in terms of you seeing the need for anti-capitalist politics and we'll talk about that if you want, in terms of what that means. And and for me, obviously, as you said, growing up in West Belfast, family members in Sinn Féin, um, I, I would presume most of my family family did vote Sinn Féin. Um, hopefully they all vote for me now, but I know... Uh, I know quite a, quite, a, quite a lot of them do, maybe not all, but um, I don't, uh, uh, we can talk about that. Um, but for me, basically, um, I wanted to see socialist politics, um, and there was a gap, um, I suppose, across Ireland generally, but especially here. Um, and, and Sinn Féin, obviously, you know, some points proclaimed to be um uh, flirted with whatever language you want to use um socialist politics or socialist rhetoric um but very much up until or through the period of sort of early 2000s when i was sort of you know coming coming of age so to speak they kind of dropped all that stuff um so for me i was i was being radicalized i was being politicized by um anti-capitalist thoughts of whatever sort um and the anti-war sort of protests in belfast and across the world and to me, Sinn Féin just didn't seem to be central to, to any of that. So I therefore get involved with people before profit and then one thing led to another. And uh, my face was on a poster, I have a lamp post, quite a lot of them. Um, and then things developed from that. Um, but uh, it is an interesting way, the, the, the way you put it. 
Well, it just seems like for uh, someone who's socially left or economically left to, that would Sinn Féin as someone living in Belfast, I'm assuming you're you're nationalist and you would probably prefer United Ireland. That just well, like uh, all, basically what I'm saying is all the tick boxes suggest yeah. that you should be running as a Sinn Féin MLA, and instead you decided to get involved with people before profit. Now, yeah. How how did you you find? Uh, the guys involved with that did, did you meet Eamon McCann or was there someone else yeah um, just to say I mean I'm, I'm for United Ireland but I wouldn't say I'm a nationalist I'm from a sort of nationalist community and Republican strong Republican area you know okay. that, that's obviously true in terms of the lack of representation in West Belfast but you know there's a history of, of labour um, sort of labour struggle labour ideas and working class sort of ideas in West Belfast sometimes that sort of falls into or is connected to republicanism but you know it's, it's there's not it's not like it's totally alien um from people um i uh, yeah I, I had some friends in school uh, with Samiris in uh in west belfast and glen road um and some friends were in people before profit um one of them actually stood for us in, in, in 2007 um and he I got involved in his campaign um I sort of it was anti-water charges of the war uh campaign um and then yeah i don't know where but i met even mccann somewhere along the way um obviously very sort of how would you say um fiery what? fiery is probably the word i would fiery, use yeah fiery is good yeah definitely fiery historic and you know great great sort of character and great stories and all that um and for me just kind of the sort of tied into the first part it's you know the binary the binary options in the north are you know you're from west belfast you know you you have to be sort of nationalist or Sinn Féin. you're from I don't know, east belfast you have to be you know red white blue protestant that's that's your that's the way we're told things have to be as the way politics has to be and you know I, I think from whatever age i kind of you know maybe didn't have a full theory of rejecting that but it didn't sit comfortably uh, with me and then i think people will profit i think um you know, in a difficult society, in a debated society, I think uh, done well, and you know, I would sort of pat ourselves on the back, continue to do well, and to try and bring people together in a in a in a working class and a sort of people who are oppressed way. And and for me, I think that's 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 more relevant now than than it's ever been. To be frank, it's definitely a testament to the grassroots work that people before profit do to see them actually take a seat in West Belfast. If you'd said to someone before 2011, they would have laughed that that was even possible. <laughs> so like, like total respect for, for the work because grassroots politics is, is incredibly important and, and will never stop being so. So it's always fantastic to see little small parties uh, push in to you know, make, make voices heard. What would you say your your first memory of of politics was? Like you talked about being radicalized there, was there a galvanizing moment? Yeah, um, I mean, this was the first moment of, of politics. I mean, I always remember the news being on in the house. Um, so there was always politics of some sort, but it wasn't to my memory. It wasn't the house. I mean, my, I think my, my my mother and father were very political in their own ways, but it wasn't a house where we were kind of, you know, engaged in, in, in deep politics because I think there was an element of, you know, family wanted to protect for the kids from the troubles and what was going on in the outside world. 
Um, so there's a there's a memory there, if you will. But um, two two ones stand out in school. Um, there was a mobile phone mast at the top of our um, top of the the geography geography and English building in Samaris, and there was a walkout um, against that. Uh, basically, the, the the argument at the time was that it could cause cancer, and whether it was sort of scientifically backed up or not, you know, it, it's for other people to to uh, to determine. But um, I would have been, I don't know, second or third year, and I don't, I wasn't really, I honestly can't remember if I specifically walked out, but I remember like people, other people walking out of school and walking down the big school lane, which was about I don't know, about a mile long. Um, so there, there was that kind of, you know, a bit of that, a bit of activism around the school. Um, and like I said, I was maybe on, on the periphery of that. I don't think it was really uh, involved at all. Um, but the main moment was the uh, the Iraq War. Um, so 2003, um, I think we were fifth or sixth year. And basically, obviously, there was, there was a global movement um, against the war. I remember watching the news quite and reading papers quite sort of, um, vividly and, and just being uh, not convinced of and, and, and realising that uh, the Iraq war would lead to more carnage and you know for whatever you want to say about Saddam Hussein you know Tyrant and you know all that kind of stuff I, I was convinced and, and lots of others were the Iraq war would, would be a bad thing and obviously you know tragically we were proved right uh, so we walked out of school uh, quite a lot of us walked out of Samiris, um and we joined the demonstrations and after that we were actually punished by the school by giving it we were given it attention um i think the following friday um the uh, school was off for uh, an easter or a bank holiday yeah. and uh, we were brought in as a de- for a detention for walking out and i remember from that moment just being absolutely furious um you know, if anything, probably shouldn't should have been maybe awarded. I don't know if that's too grandiose, but uh, certainly maybe praised for being politically active. Uh, but the school, uh, some elements of the school punished us. And, and from that, I suppose, I became sort of politically active and involved. How much impact do you think that kind of student activism can, can actually have? Like, how important do you think it really is? And how much is it just kids trying to get out of school? Because... Uh, for example, with the, the the climate strikes that were going on last year, like it was so inspiring to see so many people, like so many school kids, just out on the street in the big marches that were getting bigger and bigger and bigger every every time they did one in Belfast. And then there was part of me that's just going, how many people even know why they're here? <laughs> because... I don't know. I kind of feel like kids can very quickly get caught up in that kind of thing just because it gets them out of school. Uh, how, how, yeah. So, how, how much impact do you think that can have? How important is it, or is it more yeah. just helping kids like dip their feet into the world of activism? Yeah. Well, there's, there's nothing wrong with them dipping their feet and getting, getting involved in the world of activism. Um, and I think it's very uh, important. I mean, that, that that kind of argument is always thrown out. You know particularly by sort of mainstream media and mainstream politicians that students are, are just sort of out for a day off, you know. But my point is that why, why they're not doing it the day before or the day after or the week after, you know, they've, they've picked obviously a specific day for a reason. And to be honest, yeah, I was involved in uh, <clears throat> speaking at and attending the climate strikes, um, most of them, most of the protests. I'll be honest with you, you know, young people there were far articulate 
uh, far more articulate than me now, <laughs> using words that I couldn't pronounce or didn't know what they were in terms of describing biological species. And so they were incredibly articulate. And to be frank, I think specifically with the climate issue, you know, people are watching the likes of David Attenborough, they're reading the news, they're, you know, families are talking about it more than ever. So I, I think it's, um, it, it, they've, they've definitely bought into it, you know. And, it, you know, every movement, remember the Occupy movement, there was kind of a criticism of it that um, they've no worked out uh, end goal was, was the kind of the critique of it. Um, even though part of the, the Occupy movement was to say there's a class divide in society and we need to rectify that which for me is a good start but every movement has people who have ideas developed don't have ideas developed you know have ideology don't have ideology you know so it's it's part of getting people involved and getting people active and and every time there's a period you know 1968 is being referenced in terms of historically as being uh, sort of similar to today in terms of you know the black liberation movement and then and and in 2003 and, and sort of around the climate stuff you're you always see young people in terms of walking out of school walking out of university so i think it's part and parcel of history and to be frank i think it's essential and for me it, it certainly played a, a fundamental part in in, in getting me politicized in, in, in my own way when did you realize you wanted to be a politician maybe you still don't want to be but <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that, that's true um, I always say, well, I quite often say this. I never, never really went. Woke up one day and went, I want to be a councillor in MLA, and that's not my sort of. You know, I am an MLA, obviously, and I take that very, very seriously. But for me, it's it's a role I'm in because the the politics brought me there. To be frank, um, and not to sound too abstract about it. Um, so it's it's an honour to represent the you know the people in my constituency. But for me, it's just it's using using the MLA position and whatever prestige or whatever um, sort of elevate the chat, whatever prospect of elevating my voice. Um, and there's an element of that with being an MLA and, and I use that to, to support and promote campaigns. So I don't think I had a day where I woke up, <laughs> to be honest with you, and, and uh, said I want to be an MLA. But um, obviously there was, a, there was a time when a student um, was elected and I suppose it happened from then. What was the biggest shock to you the first time you went in as an elected MLA to Stormont? Was there a moment where something and you went, hang on, that's not, or you were really shocked about who something operated or the, the amount of power, for example, that um, civil servants or special advisors had? I, I had Sam McBride on there a, a few weeks back talking about that sort of thing and, and his his work in Burned is fantastic. So I'm curious if, if you had any insights in, in that particular area. Yeah, a couple, a couple of things. <clears throat> not, not specifically spas. I, I haven't really came up against them. Uh, to be, to be frank with you, um, in, in any sort of notable way, um, good or bad. Um, I remember um, going into, you know, going into the chamber and, and having to sign the register as unionist or nationalist or, or other. And me and Eamon Khan, he was there at the time. Obviously, we wrote, we wrote, we wrote socialist on the register, which I think that may have been the first time that was done. Um, so that that's, that's certainly a moment that we're we're proud of. Uh, I remember going into the uh, going into the the, the canteen, <clears throat> excuse me, the canteen installment, which is I don't know if you've been in, but it's the, kind of the the uh, the basement floor. And we, me and Eamon and uh, some of our colleagues were sitting at a, at, a, at a table and having lunch. And uh, <laughs> a Sinn Féin member came up 
and uh, and said, "Jay, I know you took a seat off us in West Belfast, but they'll be taking our table, our lunch table." (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious, because unbeknownst to me, there's unofficial, you know, party tables, you know, for Shinsons at one place, and I was at the EP sit at the back. And the lads and the SLP and the UEP sit in the middle. Like we were, it's our first day. You know, we we were like, <laughs> it was it was it was funny, but it was uh, a bit bizarre and kind of gave a sense of the even uh, how the uh, what do you call it? the uh, the uh, the uh, lunchroom is is sort of divided and whatever segregated. Uh, so that's kind of a bit of a funny insight, but also political in, in a sense. Um, and then the other thing that kind of shocked me um, was. <clears throat> Very early on, the uh, <clears throat> and nobody really knows this because it's it's not out in the public as much as, as it should be. Sorry, right. not not many people listen to this show. Don't worry. Oh well, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean that. I meant just uh, before this. Um, there's a thing called uh, the business committee instalment, which basically sets the agenda for the week and decides when certain debates will happen and, and and you know mostly housekeeping sort of stuff. But I made a decision very early on that. Um, myself and Eamon and the Greens and uh, Jim Allister and Claire Shugden and maybe somebody else, sort of sort of the smaller and independents would be moved down the pecking order in terms of speaking rights. So basically there became debate after debate after debate where me and Eamon were trying to speak and we were told, sorry, time has ran out. But before that happened, you know, you had three or four Sinn Féin speakers, three or four DUP speakers. Uh, and it was a really, it was a disgraceful way of trying to silence us. And as much as that uh, infuriated me and still does, it kind of showed you that they were terrified of, of hearing our voices because nothing like it, um, to be frank, was, was, was heard before. So you really think they see as a, like a serious threat or just the print, the idea that there could be people out there better representing the grassroots communities that they have claimed the UP and Sinn Féin to represent for so long? Do you think yeah, they fe- do you think they fear that grip on those communities slipping away? I think that's part of it. Yeah, um, I mean, even in Sam McBray's book, um, in terms of the the Stormont, um, <clears throat> excuse me, collapse in twenty seventeen. I mean, he cited um, people before profit calling demonstrations in Belfast and Derry um, to put pressure on Sinn Fein, um, and I don't want to overegg it, but I think I think our role in twenty seventeen played a part in Sinn Fein taking swift action. Because in normal times, you know, Sinn Féin didn't pull down Stormont over welfare reform and whatever else you want to say, um, um, NAMA, you know, so many scandals in the name. I think the reason, in part, uh, why they were they forced Stormont, um, uh, they pulled out of it, was because, I mean, there was public anger, obviously, uh, uh, on a massive scale around RHI. They, they were saying more seats could be uh, vulnerable in their constituency if they didn't do something and they saw, you know, the rise of, of myself and Eamon uh, and they were, they were, they were threatened by that. So, so I, I think they are. Um, and I think even if you look at um, Storm and I, there's um, trying to count them, six, six MLAs out of 84 who are not in the executive or whose parties are part of the executive. So I think more and more, and back in 2016, you had the official opposition, obviously. So more and more, I think you need voices like, you know, ourselves, but also others like Greens and, and sort of others. Um, and I think the bigger parties do not like that. They want, as you, as you said, they want a cosy um, situation storming. They want as much control and power in their communities as possible. And I think that sort of upsets that or challenges that they hate the space. 
Well, I actually have to say I'm quite grateful in Northern Ireland, despite our questionable coalition system that we have the most representative voting system in the whole of the UK and one of the most representative in Europe, which is excellent, which it's it, it gives me a little bit of hope in that when you see the Greens and the Alliance Party doing well, their vote share often translates into a fairly similar share of the seats. And that's like so crucial for the, the development of little movements, especially in times like this, which is, is fantastic. So you mentioned that you felt that you were pushing an anti-capitalist agenda that wasn't getting voiced in other parties or in, in other outlets in, the, in Northern Ireland. How would you describe said agenda? Anti-capitalist agenda, yeah. Yeah. Um, for someone, well, like, for for people that think that's like big, big and scary. Oh yeah. Um, well, basically, I mean, you saw with the coronavirus, you saw, you know, unprecedented intervention by the state um, in the economy. You know, even the the Tory state, the Tory government. You know, who have a lot the a lot of a lot to answer for in terms of their handling of, of the coronavirus, but they intervened in the economy in terms of protecting workers' wages. You know, for the most part. Um, and on other measures, um, and that really, while they still are capitalists and you know neoliberal to their core, that that's unprecedented in, in many ways. And, and I think for us, you know, there's a an ideology which is quite deep within within the northern state and within Stormont, which basically says, you know, we only get a certain pot of money from Westminster. We have to sort of dice that up as best as we can. And of course, we would like to spend money on X, Y, and Z, but we just can't do it. And for us, we reject that for many reasons, because obviously, first of all, Westminster has failed to properly um, invest uh, in, 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 the, in the North generally. But also, we live in a, in a society in the UK, in Ireland, in, in the North, where there's a lot of people with a lot of money. You know, there's millionaires, there's multimillionaires. Uh, and there's corporations uh, who either don't pay tax or pay very little tax. So, so for us, it's, it's to say at a very basic level, we need to push those arguments forward, which no real, you know, on, on a on a big scale, on an all Ireland scale, no other party uh, pushes those things. But also, I think we have to say that you know we have to go beyond that in terms of having a political and uh, economic system, which puts the vast majority of people. Uh, first before the interests of, of a minority and that may sound a bit sort of rhetorical and ideological but in in concrete terms it means um taking power and wealth of the, the powerful and wealthy and redistributing it into the hands of, of the majority um you know there's there's obviously a role a massive role for the state to play in that but ultimately i think that there needs to be in terms of my vision and our vision of socialism it's a um a socialism from below a democratic version where people uh, are central to and involved in all the decisions um, that they make because you can't have um, socialism without democracy. So I don't know if that's a long with the way of answering your question, but in, in broad terms, I would say I would say that. There's a few things I want to address there, actually. You say that the, the Westminster failed to invest sufficiently in Northern Ireland. I would say that there's at least some extent to which we have had sufficient money pumped into Northern Ireland, but we've spent it poorly due to the segregation of quite a lot of our community and the fact that we end up wasting a lot of money. 
would you do you think i'm i'm being a bit harsh there or? Well, i think there's no element of truth i mean i i, I don't know i mean i mean obviously we, we do live in a, a segregated debated society but to be frank with you some sometimes you know i can I see arguments being not saying necessarily by you but by others arguments being pushed around segregation to justify say closing schools or closing leisure centers or reducing services that you know you know working class communities don't have a lot of um so there's that argument i agree with you that stormont has wasted money left right and center you know um you know rhi for one um i think it's a million pound a day being spent on pfi and private public private partnerships so i'm, I'm definitely not uncritical of stormont um but there has been a withdrawal of uh, several billion pounds from the northern block grant over the last um uh, 10 years since the Tory government got in with Cameron is that uh, is that real terms or is that my understanding is is real terms okay. yeah that's my understanding okay um and they also in that same period the south of England um has increased I think the last figure I saw was certainly at least a billion but it could be more but so the south of England has received an ejection uh, of extra cash. Nor- Northern England, um, I presume Wales and Scotland, but in, I can't say for certain, and the north of Ireland has got less money. Um, so I think historically, you know, for all the talk of the United Kingdom from the British government's perspective, and they're happy to you know do one thing south of England and for London, uh, by and large, and, and leave the north because, you know, it's further away. <laughs> they're not... They should be, but they're not ultimately accountable in terms of elections um, to people here. So I, I think there's, there's fundamental problems uh, within that. But also, I think there's there's a critique, and um, we've tried to do this through the budget debate in Stormont. There's a critique of the economic agenda of the Stormont parties, uh, who all buy into this. You know, for all the rhetoric they spout about the NHS and supporting it, they buy into this ideology that you know public services have to be whittled down have to be reduced and even Sinn Féin for all their left rhetoric and support that uh, as well. You mentioned there that there is, or well, the British government have spent an outrageous amount of money on on the coronavirus pandemic crisis. They've, they've freed up huge, like billions and billions and billions of pounds that they previously sort of said were not there. Then they were kind of there, but they were for Brexit, for the secret post-Brexit spending spree. But if we wanted to spend it on like university fees, it wasn't wasn't okay for that. And, but they've suddenly found all this 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 money, or they've they've been galvanized into accepting that some of their austerity dogma was kind of bullshit in a way (laughs) at least that's how i read it but does that give you hope that the era of neoliberalism and that austerity government style of public spending is over or is this just like a little blip and as soon as we get back to it we're gonna go pure like thatcherism wave number four strip back everything that's not still nailed down (laughs) Yeah, uh, good question. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, it was a trees in May said there was no magic money tree. Yes. Um, and it turns out there's forests of it, you know. Um, Modern monetary uh, theory. <laughs> and uh, so there's that point. Um, and, I, and I think my hope is that there's a new kind of 
have you say a new normal as as they're mentioning um in terms of you know the state is it sort of reflects the need for more investment in low pay workers and you know health service and a lot of other things so i, I hope that's the case but my hunch is that you know the tories will you know raid this out for a period of time i don't know maybe six months maybe a year and then they'll come back and say <clears throat> excuse me there's a there's this bill you know, our mates aren't, aren't going to pay for it. Our hedge fund manager friends aren't going to pay for it. You have to pay for it, you know, and talk about national unity and national sacrifice. So that's my hunch. But also, I think it's not as simple as, you know, say 2010, even when they launched a vicious um, austerity program. You know, it wasn't plain sailing there for the, for the Tories, but you know, the, by and large got a lot of it through. Well, they've 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 adopted what I think it was the the Paul Pinder, the the head of Capita, called a salami technique. They just like sliced mm. off little little bit by little bit by little bit over the past ten years of public mm. services and of public spending. Yeah, and and we'll probably try that again. But what's different this time <clears throat> is that I mean, you know, there, there was a, there was again a big agenda then to say basically to, to put a divide between workers and people on benefits, and that's still large and still deep in many ways. But the idea now that you know healthcare workers don't deserve a, a pay raise, that people working in I don't know Iceland or Asda or Sainsbury's or whatever don't deserve fair wages, I think it's, it's quite um, it's quite popular that, that those people deserve respected and, and supported. Um, and also, I mean, somebody said this to me a while ago that people were, were obviously clapping for the NHS and NHS workers. They weren't clapping for chief executives or hedge fund managers. So, I mean, it's not automatic that everybody therefore develops socialist ideas and becomes a radical. Things aren't don't operate that way. But I think there's a mood in society that's um, you know there, there's there's a class element to it. And I think if the Tories or Stormont come for people um, economically or financially. Despite the fact that you know, by and large, pretty much most people, the vast vast majority, have sacrificed a lot and stayed at home and obey the measures. I think, I think governments may want to go down that path, but I think they're, they're quite nervous to do that because I think that there would be a, a severe, severe backlash. That's my hope. So, wait, you're telling me that you're not going to be swept in to to Stormont on a wave of of socialist like euphoria? People before profit take like seventy percent of the seats. After people wake up and red pill like pure communism. After, <laughs> I mean, I would love, I would love that, of course. You know, if you're, if you're offering that, and if you have a recipe for that, then I'm, I'm all ears. But um, you know, I think it's um, yeah, you, know, I think from the sort of line of work that, that I'm in, in certain terms of building socialist parties and, and, and socialist movements, you know, you want to be enthusiastic as possible, but understand that. You know, we do still live in a capitalist society in the sense that, and that may sound pessimistic, but it's not. It's saying there's massive opportunities. I, I'm very, very confident that we can grow our organization electorally and numerically, you know, because of, you know, what, what's happened with uh, the coronavirus, unfortunately, in terms of people, you know, being left and neglected and being financially punished, but also the sort of the Black Lives Matter movement as well. So I, I think we can we can grow ourselves, um, but also we do live in a in a society that still sort of churns out, you know, the usual nonsense. So you know, it's kind of a it's a bit of a 
not a great situation, but but I, I'm quite confident for, for the future. Hmm. How much do you think that the whole coronavirus crisis, I was trying not to talk about it, but you know, since we're on it, yeah. how much do you think that's like woken people up to the power of the state in a way? Because if you're, say, my age or even a little bit older, so I'm 26, or 94, say you go back like even 10, 15 years before that, especially in Northern Ireland, I'm not sure that there's that much living memory of the good that an interventionist government can do. Not always necessarily does do, but like the the amount of power that a state has to make changes and invest in things and just really like produce the goods when it's an emergency and in a way that no corporation or multinational or individual could ever do. How much do you think people have been woken up to that? Because, for example, my my mum, who who I wouldn't consider to be particularly, <laughs> I'd say she's pretty centrist, pretty yeah, she's one of those like garden center liberals. Basically, I would I would describe her as most of the time. Nothing wrong with those people. No, Nothing no, wrong. no. no. <laughs> But she is she, something that re, she really commented on several times to me early on in the crisis was, why can they suddenly get rid of all the homeless people? That was just that was something that she picked up on, and she was like, okay, why couldn't they do that before? If it was that easy, and it's that much of a risk with this disease that we maybe don't know how serious it is or how much worse it is than like a standard flu that we would get in like winters. Suddenly, they've 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 got the ability to just take all the homeless people off the streets. Why couldn't they yeah. do that before? Was basically her her point. And uh, do you think that it's it is a moment of 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 change for the this like our collective psyche, or is it just going to be forgotten in six months? I'm hoping it's going to be significant. You know, um, and I kind of concur with that in terms of what I've seen other people say. You know, things that were impossible. <clears throat> um, or not feasible, we were told, you know, as you said, you know, not even just 10, 15 years ago, but maybe even six months ago or last year, or in some cases being done or partially done, you know, there's legislation being brought through around um, sort of rent um, evictions, instalment. For our part, they're not strong enough, and, and, and that's maybe a conversation for another day. But, you know, there's stuff being brought through even, even by Stormont and Westminster, that they wouldn't have done um a few years ago about um benefit reductions and uh, paying back sort of loans or benefits taken out now they're kind of meager in terms of like the the state should be doing more but it's it's some kind of comfort to people in in a tough situation so i I think you're right i I think there's there's the whole argument now about what the state should be doing i mean there was arguments even i mean even some people on the left um, I can't remember who uh, sort of popularized it, but saying that the state is irrelevant, you know, because of global capitalism and globalization, the state is, is no longer relevant. There was an argument kind of a couple of years ago made, uh, maybe 10 years ago around that. Um, I, I certainly, I and people before, before, people before profit didn't accept it, but I think it's it's kind of, it's, it's being blown out of water. The state is, is powerful, as you said, can take on unprecedented measures. And I hope that, it, you know, out of the, you know, it's a tragic situation, obviously, but out of um, out of this, I'm hoping that all those movements, you know, are, are can be inspired and the ceiling can be sort of raised higher for, for what's possible. Um, even under capitalism and even under the current system, I think 
and hope that movements can be encouraged by what's being done to say, listen, you've done that then, well, why can't you do this now? So I'm quite hopeful. Why back Brexit as a socialist? Is there not a serious fear of the conservative British government just using it as a an excuse to grant their long list of neoliberal wet dreams that I imagine some people like Dominic Raab have scrawled on their bedroom wall. Is that is 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 Brexit not just giving them the ultimate blank check? Well, hopefully not. Obviously, for our part, we we are opposed to pretty much everything the Tory Party represents and is trying to do. Um, and to put it bluntly, um, twenty sixteen obviously seemed like. And a lifetime ago now, you know, only four years ago. Uh, four years ago this month, I think, isn't it? Or next month? Um, yeah, and, this and this month, twenty twenty third of June. Oh, coming up four years from our Independence Day. Four years, Independence um, <laughs> Day, and um, so, so I think. I mean, I come on. I can come on to the critique of the sort of Tory approach and English nationalism in a second, if you want. But for from for a socialist organisation. Um, you know, essentially neoliberalism is writ large into the EU. I think the problem has been um, throughout sort of the referendum and, and since is that the true experience of the EU wasn't really felt in the North in the sense that talk to people by and large about the EU here and it's seen as good in terms of helping to build bridges, helping to give jobs and slightly paraphrasing, but in most people's heads, that, that's in short what it represents um, and so some sort of rights. But um, for, for people in Greece, people in Italy, people in other parts of Europe, it's a basically a economic um, hammer blow and has destroyed you know people's lives in terms of uh, implementing strict policies uh, which say uh, government uh, debt has to be a certain level, um, states can't go, over, can't go beyond that, and very, very strict and stringent economic um, um, treaties and measures were put in place. So for that, um, we can't endorse it. Now, the Tory party obviously have an agenda, as you sort of rightly said, is about deregulation and you know, all the, these kind of horrible, nasty stuff. But for us, we, we, we sort of seen that we can't back elites in Brussels or London, and we stand independent of those, which isn't always the easiest argument to get out because, <clears throat> especially here, Brexit we're told equals um, the Tories. So we, we kind of uh, we don't say yay Brexit. We're saying we have fundamental critiques of the EU. We can't endorse it as an institution, but we believe people here voted to remain, um, and we're Democrats, and that should be respected. Um, and I think that's there's a whole conversation in that in terms of the national question, which has been sped up by by um, the UK voting to leave, um, and in Scotland as well. So I think for us, it's saying that we we can endorse what the EU is about. Um, and not to mention all the stuff about refugees being drowned in Fortress Europe. So, in, in, in basic terms, in short terms, that that's 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 what we'd say. The refugee crisis still breaks my heart. It's I yeah. think it's one of the most morally indefensible things that our generation has has kind of stood by and allowed to happen. I I, I will never yeah. I I will never understand anyone not having sympathy from people who are literally willing to row across the med in a tiny raft to 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 escape 
and to not have sympathy for them is i i i will never get that if i felt so desperately that my life in northern ireland for example was so bad that the only way that i could the 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 only thing that i could countenance that was better than staying was to sail across the irish sea in a raft i must be so fucking desperate and the men is even worse yeah, exactly. It's maybe not as cold, exactly. but I'd say it's pretty cold. Yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, you know, Fortress Europe was was built uh, by the European Union. You know, doing deals with uh, uh, the Libyan government to send people back. You know, and this kind of stuff is not really talked about in a popular way. And you know, freedom of movement should exist for people in European Union and in European states, but it should extend to people in Syria. In Libya and Lebanon and you know Mali and Egypt and 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 unfortunately that that's not the European project which um so it's with a left critique of the EU but in politics here that's kind of sort of cast aside um which isn't uh, too uncommon. How much chance do you think Northern Ireland has as a state now post Brexit? Are we just are we destined now without any other chance or choice to basically? just slowly drift towards the United Ireland in some point in the next 20 to 30 years? Is that where we just ev- inevitably end up now? Or is there another path? Can Northern Ireland succeed as a state? I don't think it can. Um, whether, sort of, as you ask, whether United Ireland just kind of happens, I think I think a lot of people end for ending, uh, ending partition and, and for United Ireland, but I don't think it's as straightforward as saying it, it'll happen. But I, I know your point that you're making. I think it's the, the northern states being discredited. Um, you know, historically it was kind of Republicans and, you know, some elements of nationalism and some elements of, of socialism and, and the left who sort of were against the northern state and argued for it essentially to go. But you're seeing a section of people who, you know, maybe vote alliance, um, vote sort of other parties. Sort of, I don't know if you wanted to sort of describe them as liberal Protestant or liberal unionist or, or whatever. Uh, but there's a cohort of people who, you know, five years ago, two years ago, sorry, well, maybe before Brexit, um, would not have, um, you know, would not have thought um, about the uh, the possibility of ending um, the northern state. And I think there's just people like that, and I, there's there's a common sense to it, you know. But do you think that's um, do you think that's because of Brexit, or do you think that's because it coincided with the collapse of Stormont for three years? Do you think that just pushed people over the edge in terms of what they're willing to put up with in order to have our own governance here? I think it's both, you know. I, th- I think it's both, to be frank. Um, and a sense of as well of you know you know we're still I mean you know I know the coronavirus is is not to be talked about today. Um, well, well, look if you look at the sort of the way London responded or, or didn't respond to the coronavirus, uh, I mean people here still feel that you know and that's true. We're by and large we're still uh, beholden to London, you know, beholden to Westminster financially, uh, and for the most part, for a lot of cases, politically and, and policy issues. So I think there's a section of people who are um, who are equal for equal marriage, who are pro-choice, um, and they'll see obviously Westminster made moves on those issues. But I think there's the feel that you know we should be able to you know to say for ourselves and have a, a situation where 
in the south. Obviously, there's there's abortion legislation and, and measures in place. There, there was equal marriage before it existed in the north, and there's a, I think there's a sense of people who may not have historically been for ending uh, the border. They're like, you know, I want a part of that. They want to live on an island that's more progressive. Now, how they vote in a border poll is maybe is is it anybody's guess, or certainly it's up for debate and, and up for persuasion. But I think you know the you know the solidity of of the northern state is not as solid as it was, you know, in 1988, in 2010, and even 2016. So it's, I think it's very, very fragile. I think unionism really, really the only argument that unionism is putting across is that stability, you know. Um, you know, we can't break up the UK because instability. And then you talk to people, you know, people's lives are unstable. Um, and there's, you know, poverty, there's inequality. Um, so that, that I think that argument is discredited. Um, there's also the fact that you know the argument around the NHS is always used by the DUP and UUP. You know, you can't vote for Remain Ireland because the NHS, NHS. See, that's that's that, one of the few things that that keeps me from from thinking. Okay, yeah, I would vote for United Ireland. I love yeah. the NHS. Just even just as like a principal thing, I think it's fantastic, and is the way healthcare yeah. should happen. Yeah, to- totally, totally agree. Uh, but as you know, the NHS was not a gift from the British state. <laughs> the NHS fair was, point. was created, it was created out of the sacrifice or slaughter, whatever word you want to use, of the Second World War. And there was a fear that you know, there was a fear of, of revolution at home. There was obviously the Labour Party that kind of you know got elected, Nay Bevan, um, and so on and so forth, created it. But also, those same unionist parties uh, here have spent how many years underfunding, disinvesting, uh, and that corporatizing? Probably, that's the one that gets me. Corporatizing—that—that's the good word. Corporatizing NHS. So it's like, come on. So yes, the NHS is a good. Um, I mean, it's been cut down and you know stripped stripped back. But the essence of the NHS is essential. And from our part, you know, we want to see that. You know, all across the island, but we're involved in a campaign about creating an all Ireland, the NHS. Uh, and I think um, we obviously that's that's our position, that's our policies, our politics, and uh, we want to see that happen. And so, for, from our part, any United Ireland has that has to be central to it. Otherwise, what are you doing? You know, otherwise, how are you going to convince uh, the vast majority of people um, to um, you know vote against or leave the, the devil they know? Well, that is a fantastic place to leave it um because i'm aware you have to go on and you have another meeting and whatnot but that that feels like a nice finishing statement <laughs> but uh definitely thank you very much for for, the, for your time it was a really interesting chat thanks Josh. enjoy enjoyed it very much thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed the show don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts on facebook on twitter or to our mailing list you'll find the links for everything in the description below until next time Thanks for listening.